Parts here at Preston City Bible Church. You didn't get any notes. Who else didn't get any notes? Raise your hand. All right. Some of you are like, well, these are the same notes as last week, except for the other eight lines that you added. That's right. But we had a little bit of a disruption last week. And um, what I'm saying in number one, I really want you to have, I'm not going to read it all again, but that's probably the most important summary statement on the spiritual life that I have to offer. The most important summary statement on the spiritual life would be how I understand the filling of the Spirit, what it is and what it's not. And, um, and if, you can, if you can articulate, if you could say, this is what the spiritual life is, or this is what the filling of the Holy Spirit is, if you could do that, or even just say, this is what David Roseland thinks Ephesians 5.18 is talking about, then I will feel successful, I would think I was successful, that you could articulate it. In other words, um, I've kind of given you an open notes, and now I'd like to give you a quiz and see if you can fire back at me really quick. Can someone tell me what the filling of the Holy Spirit is not? And again, our passage is, um, <clears throat> do not be drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled by the Spirit with the result of speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. All these results, how you talk to one another, how you talk to God, and, and, uh, and your singing to the Lord, and your thanksgiving for all things to the Father in the name of the Son, and in your submission one to another. Now I'm going to s- slow down. I'm going to talk slower. I want to do it all. I'm going to do a little. Now, the filling of the Holy Spirit is this work of the Spirit through the Word of God in you. That's what I'm saying. Now, what is it not? Anybody tell me what the, sp- the filling of the Spirit is not, according to me, and what I'm observing in the text. The first thing I said it's not is emotionalism. What do I mean by emotionalism? I don't mean that we don't have feelings. It's not what I mean. I don't mean emotions are negative or, or, or Ill, illegitimate or any of that. You, God made you a feeling being with affections or emotions, however you want to call it. What I'm saying is that the, the, the biblical doctrine of the filling of the Holy Spirit is not about primarily how you feel. And emotions do not become the standard for it. That would be emotionalism. What else is it not? What is mysticism? It's not mysticism. What does that mean? Anybody have an idea, a knockdown definition of mysticism? That's pretty good, yeah. yeah God, it's where you, what I mean by mysticism specifically is special revelation that you're claiming you get from God because of inner impressions and leanings. In other words, you're not really hearing a voice with actual content that's being spoken to you. I contend he's not doing that right now. That's not good. We have the Bible. The, asking the question, what is the Bible, really solves a lot of our problems about these things. But this idea that if I have these inner leanings and impressions that tend to me toward one thing or another, that that is the Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit. And um, what happens is it's subjective. It's how you feel. It's what your wants or desires are. And it, it's impossible to discern what would be God and what would be you tricking yourself and rationalizing this is what you want? It must be from the Lord. And what I joke about is uh, when your Holy Spirit is at odds with my Holy Spirit and you have your inner leanings and I've got my inner leanings and it seems like God is fighting with himself, except that no, it's just what you want and what I want. 
So it's not mysticism. It's, it's more objective and concrete than that. And it's not, the third thing was, it's not ecstatics. What is ecstatics? What do I mean by that? By the, word, by the way, the word ecstatics and ecstasy are the same root, the same idea. What are we talking about? It has to do with your emotions, but it's bigger than emotions. I would, I, well, now wait. Do you mean, do you mean uh, autoflagellating your tongue with gibberish? That you have no content to what you, yeah, that, that would not be, in my view, biblical tongue speaking in Acts 2 and elsewhere. Uh, 1 Corinthians 14. But you're right. What today is called tongues, which is gibberish, La 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 That's not that's not what we mean by the filling of the spirit. And and by the way, I can, I've told you before, I can find gibberish in all cultures as an ecstatic other <clears throat> super mystical experience. And uh, I'm with John MacArthur on this one. It's either uh, emotionalism, uh, psychosomatic sort of self-driven emotionalism, or something far more sinister and spiritually destructive from demon influence or possession. And uh, it's a huge distraction. So I would challenge you to, uh, to, to think of the filling of the Holy Spirit in biblical terms, like, well, this is going to have an effect from the Word of God on my person, my inner person. So I say this is my most important sentence. The truth about the Holy Spirit's filling is that the, He exerts His influence on our character through His use of the Word of Christ when it richly dwells within us. He is exerting his influence on our character with the result in what we say, think, and do. So there's a change in me, in the stuff of me. And so what I'm producing bears that change, and it's empowered by that change by the Holy Spirit. That's what we're saying the filling of the Holy Spirit is. Now, let me give you a little, uh, little give me some feedback. How does the Holy Spirit fill you? The Word of Christ. So Colossians 3.16, and we just summarized the rest of the page. Colossians 3.16, the command is, be, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Same command, Ephesians 5.18, be filled by the Spirit. It is what the Holy Spirit does with the Scriptures, with the word of Christ, with the message of the Scriptures that ends up making this change in you and how you relate to others, primarily, by the way, to God. All right, so um, why do I say influence? That the filling of the Spirit is influence and not control. By the way, I don't want to argue over words. I just mean these words have meanings in our language as we think of them. And if you're going to say the Holy Spirit is controlling me versus the Holy Spirit is influencing me, why would I say that we need to lean toward the the definition as influence instead of control? Okay, so you've got free will, the concern of free will that God has made us this way to, to, to make our choices. That's a really great point, and it's half of the theology that, that we've got to be really careful about. What does free will result in? What? Bam! Sin. And you cannot blame who for sin. Because God is righteous and holy and sovereign. He is not the author of sin. So if you're being controlled by the Holy Spirit, and then you something happens to distract you, you get your eyes off the Lord for a second, and you... You flash in anger at something that, that distracts you. You're angry, and it's, you know, guys, it's just a brief thing. It's just a brief aberration. We know you're not a bad guy. But there you did. You, you went off like a hand grenade, right? 
well, it must have been the Holy Spirit because he's controlling me. Can't do that, right? So it's better understood, I think, if, as you think these things through as influence. I've actually been back and forth some with, with, with theologians and pastors about this, about how, no, it's control. We've always heard it that way. Well, I get what you're saying, that when you're yielding yourself to God, he is equipping you to serve. He's helping you want what you're supposed to want. He's helping you do what you're supposed to do. That's Philippians 2, 12, 13. Yeah. Right. Right. He, Jack just said if, there were, if it was control, then there'd be no need for growth and, and, and development, and, and it, there would be no need for obedience because it would just be automatic. And so that's a bad model. I think that's a bad model of man. We're not made that way. You, you hit it. The anthropology is that God made us in his image with the capacity to make our choices. And so we use the word free will, a very theologically charged term, that if you say that, now all of a sudden they're going to throw uh, labels at us. Everybody's going to be labeled. I was, I was reading a, a few quotations from Churchill yesterday. The first one was that Churchill said that people that are uneducated uh, would profit greatly by reading uh, books of quotations. <laughs> Which, there are lots of great Churchill quotations. And so he's saying, yeah, you don't have any training if you have to read books of quotations. So I said, okay, I'll, I'll own that. Uh, I like to read Churchill quotations. But one thing he said uh, was, uh, uh, let me summarize. I don't think I have it perfect, but it was a great Churchill statement that um, he said, if, uh, do you have enemies? Good. It means you've stood for something at some point in your life. <laughs> yes. Thank you. Winston Churchill. Um, he had a lot of enemies and he did stand for something in his life. He also said, history is going to treat me favorably for I intend to write it. <laughs> what a great, great thought thinker. Um, Okay, so I think we've done the definition part right. And I want to get into marriage. Happy Valentine's Day this week. Um, this is not for our church a holy day of obligation that we would get together and have a Valentine's, the St. Valentine's Day Mass or something. We don't really acknowledge it. We don't acknowledge the, the Christian um, Catholic or Eastern Orthodox calendar of liturgy. I don't buy it. Um, all the arguments for it are really the weakest part of the tradition and um and so i think every day is i'm every day we're we're in the light of the resurrection i mean every day is the resurrection day right every day jesus has come every day is christmas but um but uh, it is valentine's day this week and um a lot of people celebrate it i think probably a lot of you do and uh, i would encourage you to i would say that's a good thing to do because it's just an opportunity where everybody in the culture remembers wait a second it's a really great thing to have a wife or a husband. It's a really great thing to have this blessing that God designed for us when he made woman in Genesis 2 and in that act simultaneously created marriage. Fantastic if we think about it correctly. Now what we don't think about usually is, is what marriage is and from a biblical perspective. And I'd like to, to spend a little time this morning with you on that. Because bullet number two on the back is what does the filling of the Holy Spirit have to do with marriage? What, is it, what does that filling ministry of the Spirit have to do with marriage? And the word is submission. That's what the filling of the Spirit is doing with marriage and children and parents and slaves and masters, or as we say, labor and management. 
the, the teaching on marriage is incidental in Ephesians 5 to the concept of submission, which is one of the fruit of the Spirit things, the result of the filling of the Spirit. This concept of submission. And everybody is placed under the aegis of the Holy Spirit, His work in you, so that you would yield to that work. In Romans chapter 6, for example, 6, 11, 12, 13, as you, so you, you present yourselves to God, and so you want, God, you have your way. It's a yieldingness, a submission. And that general sense of submission works its way out into the specific structures you find yourself in. And so that's what he's talking about is look at all the authority structures of the household. And I've said this about household. It's the toughest. The relationships of household are the most difficult. Can someone review me why they're the most difficult? That's not Ashley. Somebody who, who remember why did I say they're the toughest relationships? Yeah, you spend the most time and that means you're the closest together. And what's the problem there? I mean, it's me. That should be great for everybody that's there. I mean, all of us think that way, whether we acknowledge it or not. Some of us are more verbal about it, but I'm here. What's the, this is better for you by the minute. But it seems like as the minutes tick by, it gets more difficult. Why? Why does proximity and time spent with someone equal trouble? You said it. We're S-I-N-N-E-R-S. Duda. We're sinners. We are sinners, and we're, we sin at each other. We sin toward God constantly. Well, not, I shouldn't say constantly, but whenever we do sin, it's a sin against God. Our sins are often, by looking at self, doing something we shouldn't do, saying something we shouldn't say, or omitting something we should do toward another person that isn't God. And so God is offended first, and then who we've offended, who we've sinned against or abused is also part of that. And so if you're destroying yourself through personal sin, do you think the people around you are not going to be collateral damage? I mean, our personal sins actually hurt us the most because it's a breakdown in our rapport, our relationship with God. God isn't hurt, by the way. I know that we've got don't grieve the Holy Spirit. But I don't want you to imagine God is just up there in heaven boo-hooing in the throne of grace because you've committed personal sins. That's not what it means to grieve the Holy Spirit. Oh, you've broken God's heart. That's not what the Bible means when it talks about grieving the Holy Spirit. There is a personal relationship and there is a relational consequence between you and God when you sin. But I see God throughout the scriptures as residing in eternal bliss he's not up there you know with a box of it of heavenly kleenex just just destroyed by how you've destroyed yourself but as a loving father we can start to imagine uh there is a sense of 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 disappointment I don't think that God's disappointment with us and, and our breakdown in that fellowship and the grieving of the spirit again I don't think it does a thing to God's eternal bliss <clears throat> apparently the cross the cross doesn't either and this is the the, the difficulty of understanding god in ter- terms of his eternality i believe that god lives in eternity i think he knows the end from the beginning and so he never learns anything there's never any news to him and most of the time when we hurt just a little way of excursion on uh, on passability and impassibility when you get hurt it's usually because it's news if you don't know any different than the thing that you're dealing with, it, yeah, I'm kind of, I'm used to it. But if it becomes new and you have to deal with, I used to have this person in my life and now they're gone, 
that's the cause for grief. And it can be, it can be a lifelong wound, but, but the, the tearing thing is, remember, think about how you notify someone when they lose a loved one. It's the toughest thing because you know you're going to change their life with the words you're going to say. And so God doesn't experience that. He's, he's omniscient. He knows the end from the beginning. And the cross, apparently, the horror of the cross where the Father is sacrificing the Son for our sins to satisfy the wrath of the, just, and the justice and righteousness of God, that is not a, a, a destruction of God's eternal bliss. So how is your uh, slip-up going to break down God's bliss? So what you're going for is that bliss. You want to have that happiness regardless of circumstances, and God gives it to you. But what I'm saying uh, here is... Um, Back to, back to our, our original topic, that, that, that the filling of the Holy Spirit is going to result in submission wherever you find the authority structure. And in all the household authority structures, there's great cause for suffering and pain because of the sinfulness of the people in the thing. Let's, let's take it out of marriage for Valentine's Day sake just for a second. We'll get back to it. Let's take it out of marriage and look at it in terms of the, the boss at work. <clears throat> if you're the boss, let's put everybody in that privileged position. I worked hard, I worked nights, I went, went to school and studied and got four hours sleep a night on average, and uh, I, I, I broke my, my brain every day trying to understand this stuff and finally got where I could teach it, and then um, I, I started when I graduated at the bottom of the company emptying the trash cans and got to be the best trash can emptier, and th- 25 years later, I'm, I'm a vice president on the board of this company, and I don't deserve it, and I feel so horrible that all the people below me are... Um, don't, don't have the privileges I have that I didn't earn or deserve even though I worked every day of my life for it. Now, anyway, so we're talking about the boss at the company. <clears throat> they don't deserve that, that position to be in charge. Well, I could do a better job than they did, but I've never done anything. But anyway, um, the boss is the boss. Poor boss. You got to feel sorry for the boss. He has to deal with all these people under him that either don't understand what he's asking for or they don't really care um, about the mission, they're just trying to get the minimum they can get done in order to get paid so that they don't lose their job. They're doing the very minimums that they can get away with, and, and, then the, and, and we barely eke by, and if everybody would be a little bit more committed and robust about their efforts and really on, on mission, the company would do better, and ultimately, um, uh, all the effects of a better product and a better serving, performing business would be theirs to enjoy because, because you know, higher salaries with greater revenues and stuff. But, um, but no, we're just, and, and so the poor boss, is, how does he motivate these people? How does he get them to Stop being lazy and do the minimums and actually own the mission and run with the ball. Well, I, you know, you've got to incentivize, you've got to pay them more. And, and th- these are all factors in terms of motivation. But th- the, the heart of the matter is if you're lazy, that's a, that's a character flaw. It's a folly problem. And we all struggle with it. It's a huge problem. And so the boss, is, um, he sees his kids, you know, less often than he ought to. And he's, he's not communicating with his wife like he needs to because he's working way too many hours. But he's running with the ball. He's got to make this happen. And he's motivated in part by we've got to make a living. The company has to go. And he's a driven person. And you've got, you've got some people, poor guy, people under him that just don't own it. And their character flaws are, are destructive to the organization. And so you can imagine the problem of the boss in the small business trying to make a profit and sometimes he feels like he's building uh, pavement with, uh, well, I shouldn't say pavement. We're building vertical st- construction with, with wet spaghetti. We just can't get there. We're pushing spaghetti up a, a, a sandpaper hill. 
And so he's dealing with the sin problem. He's dealing with the sin problem of laziness in those that are working for him. And how does he deal with that? How does he manage that? And the answer, biblically, is leadership. It's leadership. It's not threatening. It's always by example. It's always to go to the heart of the issue. Like, like if we're dealing with a, a sloth problem, that person needs development. And in a household situation, you would pull them aside and say, here's what I'm seeing. And that's why in good business practice and military professional practice, what you see is uh, regular evaluations and sit down and let's talk through and here are the goods, but we're really here to talk about fixing the bads. We want to do the, the bad things. Uh, we want to fix those things to do them better and the good things we do them more. And so that's a process of, of development and leadership where the person either does or doesn't hear, but they're at least equipped to deal with themselves and tell the truth. And you know what? Yeah, I, I, I probably, <clears throat> in the eight hours that I put in a week or in a day, I'm probably giving three hours of my of intensity and the rest of the time is kind of filler. And I could probably do better. I could probably order, organize things better if I was, uh, you know, if I equipped myself and was, was uh, focused on doing that. And so... Um, you can see how we feel sorry for the boss because he's got to deal with lazy people. Let's flip it. That poor worker. The boss has no idea what a colossal jerk he is when he says any words that come out of his mouth. He thinks he's better than everyone. He thinks he's more driven than everyone. He doesn't understand I'm working two jobs. Right? You could, you could see how both parties are sinners and they're easily, easily sensitized by the sins of the other. These lazy people that don't put in their full effort, the, the arrogant boss who expects too much. And maybe, there, maybe there's some truth in both cases, or maybe one's right and the other, and, and every situation's unique. I'm not trying to generalize management and labor. I'm just trying to say you can see how in that relationship it's a huge problem because of the hang-ups in the individual, because the worker's broken and the boss is broken. That's what. And so you're, you're going to fail... <laughs> I think it was Churchill who said, um, <clears throat> success is, um, is moving from failure to failure without losing enthusiasm. Isn't that great? But yeah, you're going to fail, fail big, and then pick up, and not everything was a fail. And, and anyway, um, you got to learn and grow and, and get out there. So um, when you talk about submission in the management labor situation, that boss has a submission that he's responsible for, but it's not to say, okay, you worker um, down there on the plant floor, what should I be doing with my day? Now, he might ask that, how can my work help your work be easier? How can I make your work better? How can I equip you better? And, and, and basically, that's a question of what do you need and how can I help you get there? That's a good question for a boss to ask, but it's not the same as, what would you have me do with my day? I'll be here at six. What would you like me to start with? That's what the boss needs to, to hear from the worker. See, there's an authority structure, and it has to be that way because the way you get to be the boss is you work and learn, and the boss teaches you by telling you what, what's what. And so, so in that st structure of, of authority, you can see that the boss submits by serving, but he doesn't lose his authority's position. The worker submits by saying, you're the authority, what would you have me do? within the confines of the organizational responsibility. You know, I, I have responsibilities that you've, that you've established for me. And so uh, what we're trying to, to understand here is that the big picture, if you remove authority from the discussion, 
everybody's submitting. When you put authority back in there, it doesn't change the fact that the person in authority doesn't, doesn't stop being in authority. The person under authority doesn't stop being under authority, but everybody has their role and everybody submits within that role. And that's how Jesus is. Think, let's go to marriage now, Jesus and the church. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 33, the husband's responsibilities, Jesus and the church. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present her to himself, present to, to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to love their wives. Okay, the picture of the husband in submission in Ephesians chapter 5 is not to his wife's authority. That's not even in, in view. We haven't lost headship. In fact, Jesus is the head of the church. I want you to hold the place, and I want to dramatically illustrate what this looks like on Valentine's Day and John chapter 14, uh, 13, which altogether we know is part is the beginning of the upper room discourse. That's right. The teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ for the apostles and therefore for us about the spiritual life that would come when he was gone and the Holy Spirit had come to reside in us. He's proleptically, prophetically teaching about what we're dealing with today under the apostles. And so you have Jesus washing his disciples' feet, beginning in verse 5, uh, verse 4, God, uh, Jesus, knowing that, sorry, verse 3, he's knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, he got up from supper, laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. And we all know that that is to adopt the uniform of a slave. He adopts the uniform of a slave and thereby is somehow in a lower position than all of the uh, disciples that he called, will later call servants. Look at verse 16. Slip on that. We'll skip the whole story and look at verse 16. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than one who sent him. <clears throat> if you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. See, Jesus in verse 15, for I gave you an example that you should do as I do, slave and master. The roles haven't changed. Jesus adopts the position of slave to serve the disciples. But he then says, and we're still in the headship body thing. We're still in the authority structure. I'm still your Lord. You're still my disciples. So if I am going to serve you this way, see, it's not a loss of authority it's what is authority for? I gave you an example. And so today in our time, in our culture, authority is a bad word and it means people are oppressing others. Well, Jesus Christ isn't, isn't a, an oppressive ruler, but he is a ruler. He says, you better do this. And I, I've, I'm not doing anything. I'm not asking you to do anything that I haven't done better than you ever will. So the general comes and tours the we're at Fort Hood, 2003. General so-and-so, one star, comes down to the motor pool to inspect the vehicles and the troops working on the vehicles. And he notices, after all, it is 4.30. This is federal service. We're closing down <laughs> for the day. Um, and that wasn't always true. A lot of times they kept us real late, but that's the Army. They're, we're sweeping the motor pool. It's a time-honored tradition. You ever sweep the motor pool? Amen. See, that's light. Light troops 
They don't have to sweep the motor pool. They just have to clean their weapons one more time. <laughs> and when you're done, clean it again. And then we'll talk about how many more times you'll clean it after that. Now, we're down there sweeping the motor pool. I mean, the vehicles are all sitting there. The tanks are breaking as they sit because they break under their own weight. But that motor pool is getting swept, baby. And it, it is. Sergeant Major has to have the place swept and tidy. And it's in the middle of central Texas. So you get all kinds of uh, tumbleweed-like things or leaves or things just on the, in this big, giant concrete uh, pad, several acres with a, with a large bay garage thing, and then tanks parked in front of it, and then a bunch of trucks and track, track vehicles parked behind it. And so there they are. They're out there with their tr- traditional army-issued lowest bidder push broom, wooden push broom. And then the general comes to the motor pool, and he says, okay, let me see your, uh, let me see your, your manifest on, um, on maintenance uh, uh, let me see your maintenance report on what you've done and what's been ordered and these kinds of things for the vehicle maintenance. And you keep hearing this thing in the background. And the general likes to talk to the soldiers. He doesn't ever interact with the soldiers in an authoritative way because they've got sergeants and lieutenants and captains and everybody between them. But, but he does command. So he's, he's there and they're like, oh, hello, sir. And there's the general and everybody's like, okay, that's crazy. I've never seen a star before, but now he's seen a star. And so this little 18, 19-year-old kid is trying to sleep the motor pool. He's doing a really good job now. Now, here's the crazy thought that I want you to understand in terms of a, a legitimate authority structure. Should the general tell the private... Private, where can I sweep? Where will you have me sweep? Should he say that? He should say, here, here, uh, can I have that broom, please? And you tell me now where to sweep. And, uh, and I want you to inspect it when it's done. Make sure it's right. Now, what would be wrong? And some of you are like, oh, my progressive innards are really coming out and saying, yes, the general needs to sweep the motor pool. And all the troops are rallying. And actually, he could probably get some populist uh, you know, following from this. But what happens if the general takes two or three hours and sweeps that motor pool, and, the, and with Private Joe Snuffy standing, standing there watching, you know, you missed a spot. And the general's like, oh, you're right, thank you. And, and, then he, and he submits in terms of authority to that private. What happens? Does anybody know what happens? We lose the war. Because the general is planning and supervising the, the many layers of planning for thousands of troops and billions of dollars of our tax money going into the war effort. And he doesn't need to be sweeping the motor pool. It's not his job, but it needs to get done. And it's part of what his organization needs to do. And so there's a problem when we say, well, what's wrong with the general sweeping the motor pool? Nothing. There's nothing wrong. In fact, if he had some extra time, he's like, hey, I'm on leave. And he comes in on leave and says, the, the deputy's got the, got the plans and he's working the thing and I've got legitimate leave time. I'll come sweep with you and it'd be great. It'd be fine. He'd get some cardiovascular exercise and, and remember the fundamentals like how to tie your shoes. It's great. But, but it, it's not an authority. It would be a mis, mismanagement of authority. I hope you can see a drastic one. It seems crazy. But that's what we're trying to do in our civilization, say there's no more authority, and the gospel says no authority because there's no more Jew or Greek or slave or free or male or female in Galatians 3.28. Whenever you read an evangelical feminist, and I would do it, fine, do it, but whenever you read an evangelical feminist, they throw Galatians 3 at you and say there's no more authority structures. And that kills us. It's cancer. Well, I last week went through, in bullet number two, the idea of submission the idea of submission in terms of the word hupotasso and how it's used in the New Testament. And I want to slip down 
to um, number three, bullet number three, and I'm calling it a great error. And here's the error that I think accounts for why evangelical feminists do what they do, why men overstep their, their role as an, in, a, in, a, in an authority position as a husband and wield their authority in a wrong way. Why, do, why does this happen? Um, it's because you take the marriage picture of Ephesians 5, 22 through 24, wives submit to your husbands, and you take that to mean the curse of uh, Genesis 3.16. Does anybody know what Genesis 3.16 says? Let's turn there just briefly. Genesis 3.16. Do not look it up in your table of contents. Uh, <laughs> because Genesis is the first book, so you just flip past the table of contents. Genesis 3.16, and this is when God is handing out the curses as the consequence of the fall of sin. And so... He's talked already to the serpent, and now he's going to talk to the woman, and then to Adam, to the man. And verse 16, I'll just read it because I'm mic'd up. The woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth, and pain you'll bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband. That word desire is a subject of some debate. Most people that look at this linguistically think the word desire doesn't mean a Valentine's Day affection. It doesn't mean... uh, eros love or or uh, phileo love they think it means uh, a usurpation an effort to to bring him down or to to take his place um, in terms of uh, this word desire and again that's because of how it's used in chapter four but anyway your desire will be for your husband but here's what i want to talk about in the curse yet he will rule over you he will rule over you that is lording it over her that is a curse Now, evangelical feminists say, and all the feminists say, well, then authority in marriage is the curse. That it's the curse. But it can't be. It can't be that a husband's headship and a wife's bodyship and their different roles is because of the curse. Because every time marriage is addressed with this concept of headship, it goes back to the creation, not to the fall. It goes back to Genesis 2. Woman was created second for to help man, not not man first not, not not woman first but man first and and the idea of headship is what we're talking about we're talking about legitimate authority and how the curse is undone by the filling of the spirit at least a little bit this there, we're not fully divested of this anytime he's spoken harshly to you ladies you know that you're still dealing with the curse but the great error is when we say okay if there's authority in ephesians 5 that's the curse of genesis 3 it's not the curse is the curse, but it's not the origin of headship in marriage. I really want you to own that because it, it explains how you kind of shut down the, the popular spirit of no authority ever in our culture. The, the people that will say they don't want to see any authority of, of husbands over their wives today are saying they're going to do their very best to take away our cars and our air travel using government leadership. Or let, let's say coercion. So, see, there's always going to be authority. Authority is always going to show up. The question is, is it wise? Is it doing its job as it should? That's the Green New Deal, if you're paying attention. Hopefully, um, that thing goes away. Um, <laughs> that whole lot of historical note. But I'm saying the curse is the curse, and it's not the origin of headship. Authority is never a curse itself. You with me on that? God is sovereign, and we're under his authority. That's not a curse. 
the person that first said, I don't like that arrangement, is now called Satan. That's the heart of Satan's whole objection, is that I don't want to submit to authority, to God's authority. And so, well, maybe it's not just God. Maybe it's, I don't mind authority. I just don't want him to be in charge, right? This particular instance of authority I can't stomach. Well, the problem with that for Satan is that you're never going to have a better boss than a perfectly righteous, loving, and holy God, right? The best news ever is that he's God, and he's in charge, and you're not. Because you're broken and he's not. And um, he, never, he never looks back on something he's done and says, oh, that was rough. But don't you do it all the time? Don't you look back on some things you've said or thought or done and said, oh, I wish I hadn't been that way. You need to be more reflective if you haven't because you're broken, a sinful person, and this is how we are. We let ourselves down. And that's, that's not even the whole story. The big picture is that God is, uh, is evaluating our choices. We let him down. But authority is never a curse as a concept. The problem is the people in authority, and now we've got a problem. You've got fallen husbands, ladies. You've got fallen wives, gentlemen. That's the problem. They're sinful. And back to the household problem, the the closer and and longer time we spend together, the worse we see each other's flaws and failings, and we get into habits. For example, I see see you do this thing, and that makes me angry, or I choose to get angry, really, about it, and get incensed, and somehow I'm looking at myself. So in my selfishness, I look at how this offends me, and then all of a sudden, I've got all this rancor, I've got all this righteous indignation, and that feels good. It feels good. And if you get into a, an addiction kind of thing with your anger where you're like, get this indignation and this rancor that builds up, it becomes a habit. It, it, you become abusive as a pattern toward the other person. And so uh, that's where the curse is. It's in the sin, sinful people. And when you're walking by the spirit, you're not fulfilling the lust of the flesh. That's why spirit-filled marriage is the discussion. The authority structure of headship, a, a husband and wife, body, head and body, and Christ and the church, that hasn't changed. It's been enhanced so that it becomes a joy that's the idea and that's why wives submit to their husbands and husbands self-sacrifice in their love for their wives the definition of authority as i propose i want to get it on paper for you is the right and responsibility to make decisions the right and responsibility to make decisions now i, I use the general and this and the soldier they are in the same body of the army. But um, <clears throat> that's not the relationship in marriage. It's not even the general with his Jeep driver. He's sitting in the, in the pastor's seat and the Jeep driver's going wherever he says. That's not marriage either. Some of you may be in a marriage like that, but that's not what the Bible describes. That's your husband lording it over you and you feeling like you're a servant in some sort of, of servility to him. And that's not what we're talking about at all. I've seen it portrayed before. Tragically, that marriage, if a woman is, uh, is properly adjusted in authority to, from her, of her husband, then she needs to be willing to, uh, to, uh, to kiss his feet, which is insane. Because we're not talking about slavery. This is marriage. It's one flesh. And that's the relationship. One flesh doesn't just mean sex. Sex is the sign of the new relationship that is one flesh, head and body. You don't have your head sitting in the driver's seat and your body in the passenger, in the, I mean, in the passenger seat and your, your body in the driver's seat driving around the head. That's not how it works. The head takes care of the body and the body works together with the head for what we're trying to accomplish. And the issue really, you're watching, the issue is initiative. It's initiative. It's the casting of the vision. It's the how are we supposed to move forward? What is our objective? What are we as an organization going for? 
if the head is asleep and the body's running the show, then you're smacking into stuff and you don't know what you're doing. And that's the idea of the roles as portrayed with head and body in uh, Christ and the church. <clears throat> so, the Christian marriage model. The roles of head and body are given to us to understand how this relationship should work. That's why he says head and body. It's organic, it's connected. It should be intimate and communicative. There should be constant feedback and interaction. But there should never be a, a, a misunderstanding of where the initiative needs to lie. Where, where is the final decision? Where is the, who's setting the agenda? And it uh, doesn't mean in every conversation. It doesn't mean in every decision or idea. It just means in a general sense. There's an intimate cooperation through constant communication with the head setting the agenda and maintaining the initiative. Happy Valentine's Day. And by the way, women that want to see this will very often complain about passive men that will not have initiative. They will not cast a vision. They will not say, this is what we need to be about. This is what we need to do. And it's a man, it pulls us up short. I had a great, great question the other night. We, we really spent time looking at wives submitting their husbands in Ephesians 5, 22 through 24. In 12 years of ministry here, I've never had a message on just that. I've had many messages on husbands loving their wives self-sacrificially. Many, many messages. But I've never done just one on Ephesians 5, 22 through 24. Why? Because I think if husbands do their job, the wives' role is easy to see in the Scriptures, and it's easy to do, and we're trying to give them a little, a little relief by trying to prompt you gentlemen, prompt myself, we men, to do our job. It is intimate cooperation between head and body through constant communication with the head setting the agenda and maintaining the initiative. What you have to do then is ask, where should the, the, what's the agenda? What are we trying to do? What's the vision? It's awesome, gentlemen, that you would ask that question because Jesus has answered it. He told us what our mission is. He told us what our agenda is. And by the way, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, men, we have a head, Jesus. So we're not lacking in authority over us that we submit to. But in terms of the family, the marital arrangement, Jesus is the head of the man and the man is the head of the woman. It doesn't mean you don't have a relationship to Christ, ladies. It just means in marriage, you're not married to Jesus in this sense. But your marriage is to be under Christ. And so that head has to see Jesus as his head. That's first, again, 1 Corinthians 11 on marriage. Headship and body. So when you, and by the way, Jesus' head is the father. So the father sets the son's agenda. The son sets the, the, the husband's agenda. The husband is setting the family's agenda. And by the way, that means God the father is setting the agenda. And so this is really sad when you see a woman saying, we need to serve the Lord. And the husband's like, come on. but we need to serve the Lord. We need to be about God's things. Why are we not Christians in how we live? And he's like, look, I've been working all day and I'm just trying to decompress a little bit. And, and that's how it goes. And we just go along and we do what the minimum standard. And by the way, our laziness shows up. It's very convicting, hopefully, for everyone to be told that, you know, laziness is a problem for all humans. It just shows up in different ways. Some of you don't have trouble working at work. You have trouble talking to your wives, and you're lazy relationally, right? Some ladies are like, yes, he is. Others love to interact and relate. You have no problem there, but you really struggle with pushing that broom. You have trouble getting yourself to go and work and stay with it. 
Laziness is a plague. It's part of the curse of the fall. And the challenge today is to, to look at it where it is and say, okay, I need help. By the way, the Lord has given you, gentlemen, a help. Not a servant, but someone that can help you in, as you set the agenda in accomplishing the mission that God's given you. And so it really becomes the higher headquarters says, I want you to go do the mission. Then the lower headquarters commander says, all right, we're going to go do our part of the mission. And then the participants in that organization have from that lower headquarters commander saying, okay, we're on mission. And this is how Jesus Christ orders his church in the households. We are all not just, well, the mission is something that happens at church. No, the church is composed of households that are on mission. The most romantic thing I can leave you with today, gentlemen, is that you need to think about what real love for your wife is. What would it really look like? We're going to talk about this some Wednesday night as well. But real love for your wife has to consider her eternal needs. It has to consider the long term. It has to look at past whether she's comfortable now and whether she feels love as she needs to now. And eternally, will she get what the Lord Jesus Christ wants to give her in terms of the crown of righteousness? That starts with the gospel. That continues with the word of God. That's the priority. And men, if you'll set that as your priority, it will be very convicting for a wife who's looking for guidance. If you set it as your priority and she's looking for excuses and she looks to the world and says, there's my out, there's nothing you can do about that except love her and keep loving her. And as Jesus is said in John 13, to love her to the end. But if you'll set the agenda about the things of God, this is what's missing. The filling of the Spirit, in other words, is what's missing in Christianity, and it's what's missing in our marriages. Last thing I want to say is the benefits of headship in marriage. Men need to see themselves as saviors of the body. This is actually a gift to women from God. God gave man a birthday gift when he made woman from his rib. Everybody's in their birthday suit, and they all got their birthday present. It's marriage, and they're not ashamed. That's what's going on in Genesis 2. You can read it. But we often say woman was given as a gift to man because she is. God brought the woman to the man after showing him his need and he didn't have a suitable helper. And then all of a sudden, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And he's so excited. It's Genesis 2, 24. But in, Genesis, or in, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, wives submit to, the, to your husbands as unto the Lord, the Savior of your body. Husbands, your wife should have a savior of the body in you. She should have a defender, a protector. She should have somebody who is intimately interested in her success and provision and protection. And if that doesn't sound good to you, it's because there's something wrong. Something's, something's gone askew in your wiring. Have somebody that is committed as his duty to your good, to your benefit. And it starts with vision. It starts with vision. What is your idea of how, this, of, of, of how this is supposed to work is my question. Sorry, I didn't, of how. What's your idea? How is this supposed to look? Ephesians 5, 25 through 33 will be our focus on Wednesday in terms of Christian spirituality, the filling of the Spirit. And we're going to talk about Spirit-filled men who are self-sacrificially loving their wives and giving them something to respond to. Father, we thank you for uh, one another. We thank you for the gift of marriage, the challenges that we find in it, and how you've designed to, le- to leave us 
still struggling against the flesh and the world and the devil, but empowered by your spirit with your word. Thank you that the more we look to you, Father, through what you've said, the more we look into your word and to know you and your son and uh, and the power of your Holy Spirit, you convict us of the blessings that we often take for granted. Help us see headship in marriage as the blessings you designed to be. Help us see that uh, you made a woman as a helpmeet um, and, and wonderfully and fearfully with um, just such beautiful design and such incredible capability and power in its proper function and its role. And I ask that we would uh, together embrace these things and make us, Father, above all, I ask that you make Preston City Bible Church a congregation of gentlemen husbanding their wives as Christ has loved the church where this will become our reputation, that we're careful, that we're kind, that we're considerate, that we bear along and we, we live with our wives in an understanding way, for they are women. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.